Welcome to Aiming for the Moon. I am Taylor Bledsoe. And I am Maddie Henry. And on this podcast, we interview interesting people from a teenage perspective. That's right. And today, we will be interviewing Professor John M. Barry, who is the prize-winning author of several New York Times bestselling books. So, here's the interview. So welcome, Professor Barry, to the interview. It's wonderful to have you on. So I have been listening to your book, and it is really fascinating learning about the ins and outs of the 1918 pandemic. So I just wanted to, before we ask you any questions, um, say thank you. It's wonderful having you on. Thanks for uh, for inviting me. You know, oh, yeah. I'm looking it's, forward to it. It's awesome. So the first question I wanted to start out with, what are the differences between the COVID-19 pandemic and the Spanish flu pandemic as more the disease itself? So currently, as in January, there have been 365,000 deaths, which is very unfortunate due to COVID, um, at least in the U.S. These are U.S. statistics. As for the Spanish flu in the U.S., there there was 675,000 deaths, which is almost around a little bit over double the COVID-19 um, pandemic deaths, although the COVID pandemic has, is still going on. So I wanted just to ask you, what are the main differences between COVID as a disease and the Spanish flu or influenza? Well, 1918 was a much more dangerous, much deadlier virus. Remember the uh, population of the country was you know, a fraction of what we have now. Worldwide in 1918, there are estimates of 50 to 100 million dead. If you adjust for population worldwide, that would be the equivalent of 220 to 440 million today. So even the worst, worst case projections for COVID are nothing, nothing like that, thank God. Uh, so that's the number one difference is that it, 1918 was much deadlier. Uh, the second is that 1918 actually killed mostly younger adults. Probably two thirds of the dead were aged 18 to 45. Uh, obviously that's completely different from COVID-19. Uh, and probably the third difference which is also extremely important, is the duration. Influenza moves much, much faster than COVID. Uh, so close to two-thirds of the death toll, the pandemic in 1918 ran probably a couple of years. Uh, but the overwhelming majority of the deaths occurred in a 14 or 15-week period in the fall of 1918. Very compressed. And then and that's worldwide. In any particular area, uh, usually it was much shorter period of that than that when most of the deaths occurred. Probably in any particular city, the pandemic went through it in six to 10 weeks. Uh, there were waves, but the first wave was really mild. The virus mutated and became much more virulent. The second wave is when the overwhelming majority of the deaths occurred. That went away, as I said, in any particular city, six to 10 weeks. And people didn't realize that a third wave was coming. A third wave was quite deadly, but nothing like the second wave. Uh, 
So the stress, I mean, the tragedy was much greater than COVID-19. The intensity, the fear, all those things were much greater than COVID-19. But the stress from COVID-19 lasts a lot, lot, lot longer. And, you know, we're, it's going to continue at least for, in a best case, five or six more months. So we'll be in it for more than a year. Uh, the economic impact is much greater for COVID-19. Uh, so, you know, those are the chief they One other thing in terms of transmission, uh, they transmit almost exactly the same, you know, respiratory droplets, airborne transmission as well. Uh, and the difference between what is referred to as respiratory droplets is essentially you know, little particles of spit, which fall to the, from the air pretty rapidly, really in a matter of seconds, certainly smaller ones in a couple of minutes. When you talk about airborne, you're talking about smaller particles that are so small, they're like dust motes, they float in the air for hours. Uh, and people can inhale them and, and get sick. Although most of the transmission comes from, from respiratory droplets. Uh, and in that way, it's identical with between influenza and, and COVID-19. COVID and the Spanish flu or influenza are very similar in the disease, how they transmit and kind of in a way what they do. But it's this influenza was way, way more deadly. In fact, I remember reading, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but there was a, uh, there's normally with COVID, there's a U-graph, which it it sadly kills the very young and it sadly kills the very old. But with the great influenza, as you call it, or the Spanish flu, it was a W. So that was, it was killing the people who should have been in their prime. And it was also killing, but to a lesser degree, infants and elderly people. So why, so it, it says in your book that it was because of the immune system. That it seems that was one of the reasons that many people were very terrified of it. So uh, that's probably right. I don't think COVID kills many infants. You know, normally influenza will kill infants and the elderly. Uh, 1918 certainly killed many infants. In fact, children under the age of five died at a rate in 1918 equal to deaths from all causes today over a period of 23 years for that age group. It's a pretty extraordinary comparison. Um, but COVID does not really pick on infants the way ordinary influenza, as well as 1918, does. But the rest of what you said, I'd, I'd agree with entirely. One other similarity between the diseases, uh, unlike ordinary influenza, the 1918 virus, just like COVID, uh, affects almost every organ in the body, uh, quite literally from the testes to the brain. Uh, you know, the kidneys, uh, you know, the heart, particularly cardiovascular, you know, the brain, all these things that we're seeing with COVID also true of the 1918 virus. And that's very unusual. Yeah, it truly is awful how much the influenza was affecting everyone and killing basically everyone, which is very rare with diseases. So 
what do you think we have learned from the 1918 plague that um, or pandemic that we've applied to the coronavirus? And what should we still apply um, that we've learned during the 1918 pandemic? Well, as you may know, I was asked to participate in the planning for taking it for responding to a pandemic, uh, you know, in the George W. Bush administration. And the number one lesson from 1918, there were two, but the most important one, uh, which I used to advocate in all these meetings and was, I think, widely accepted, was the number one, you got to tell the truth. Because the only way to uh, the only weapon you have against a disease, a new pandemic virus, before it, you know, for the months that it takes to develop a vaccine, while you're waiting for a vaccine, the only thing you have is public health measures. And if the public doesn't comply with the advice it gets, those public health measures don't have any impact, at least not on a wide scale. And the key to getting the public is to tell the truth, you know. I think that's been uh, confirmed by what's happened worldwide in in, uh, COVID-19. Some countries have been extremely forthright with what's going on with their citizens. And those countries have tended to do much, much better than the United States. In the United States, obviously, you have a president who told a reporter on tape, Bob Woodward, in early February, this is a deadly virus and we know how it's transmitted. But he didn't say that to the public. And the result is a lot of confusion and not as much adherence to public health advice as there should be. So we have three. 165,000 dead as we're counting today, and it'll be quite a bit more before we're done. Now, you can compare this to Australia. Australia may be more like the United States than any other country in the world in terms of a sense of individual freedom and so forth, maybe even more so than Canada. Uh, You know, it's sort of a cowboy culture in Australia. And Australia so far has had fewer than 1,000 deaths. That country has 25 million people in it. So if you adjust for population, that would be the equivalent of just under 13,000 people dead in the United States. We have 365,000 dead and counting. It's the same virus. You have exactly the same tools to deal with the virus. It is a very similar culture of individualism. The difference is leadership, public health guidance, and willingness to confront the pandemic. 13,000, the equivalent of 13,000 dead if you adjust for population compared to 365,000 dead. There is no excuse for that death toll. 
So from your perspective, one of the main things about the pandemic of 1918 was what we need to learn is that every the public health people need to be as straightforward as possible with the public. Maybe the people who aren't as scientifically literate, they need to tell them the facts, what, what they're learning and right. everything that's going on. Right. It's right. interesting. And, as yeah, I was learning I, uh, about this. Yeah. Uh, let me interrupt to get to the second question. I said our second lesson. There were two lessons. The first one is to tell the truth. The second was that the public health measures work. That, you know, closing things down for a period to control the virus works. That social distancing works. And that lesson has also certainly been confirmed. You know, what, what I was just saying, Australia, Australia is a, a very good example. And their economy has, is in much better shape than our economy because they controlled the virus. It's not economy versus public health. It's not economy versus saving lives. The way to get the economy moving is to control the virus. Now, there were studies this year by the federal, by a Federal Reserve Bank, which found out that the cities that closed down earlier in the pandemic and were closed longer actually had a much better economic recovery than the cities that did not close down. Uh, and again, that's, that's a lesson maybe, but you don't need the lesson. We can look around the world. The, the countries that have done better in terms of controlling the epidemic actually have better economic performance than those that have not. So I didn't need to interrupt you. I just wanted to finish that thought. That's very interesting that that's one of the things that the more you controlled the pandemic during the 1918 pandemic, it ended up um, boosting economic development. It was That's actually very fascinating. So during this pandemic, a lot of people are looking forward to the future and thinking, what's going to be the fallout of everything that's going on? So, of course, you can't, you're not a fortune teller, so you can't answer this question specifically. But what do you think history has told us that we can expect things maybe to go? What are the repercussions of a pandemic? And what are the lasting impacts of it? So, I know um, obviously we weren't wearing masks before the pandemic, and we were wearing masks during the 1918 pandemic, but that at some point went out. So, could you tell us when you might return to normal, so to speak? Well, we have a what looks like a very effective vaccine. And, you know, I think when that gets widely distributed, uh, we will go back to a normal very much like it was before the pandemic. Uh, I think before the numbers came back on the vaccine efficacy, which seems to be 95%, at least for Pfizer and Moderna, and there are a lot more vaccines that are coming online. You know, literally dozens are being tested right now. Uh, if they all have numbers like that, then I think we can go back to a normal very much like what we knew before. Uh, I think people have short memories, and I think they want to do that. And I would think by the fall, late summer or fall, that would be the case. If the vaccine turns out not to be as effective as 90 in initial numbers, if it's like 60 or 70% effective, 
if it's like an influenza vaccine, which is not even as good as that, the best influenza vaccine we have ever had is 62% effective. Most often it's in the 40s. Uh, if we were in an, like an influenza vaccine, I would think we would have to live with masks and social distancing and maybe never shaking hands again and stuff like that. But with a highly effective vaccine, once it's widely distributed, and if the virus doesn't mutate to escape the vaccine, then I think the changes in society would be less than would otherwise have been the case. Uh, you know, early in this pandemic, people were talking about it would be the death of cities. And, and it'd be much more dispersal of the population and so forth and so on. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. You know, certainly we're talking on Zoom. You know, Zoom is, it was expanding. It was being used more and more. It greatly accelerated by the pandemic. Uh, I think that's been widely accepted by the public. So I think, you know, that'll stick around. There'll be fewer in-person things just because it's a lot more convenient than, than some travel. But I think, again, repeating myself, society will go back largely to a pre-pandemic uh, normal if the vaccine stays the way it looks. The vaccine coming out, you think that uh, society will largely go back to, as you just said, what we used to consider normal. And obviously there will be some effects like Zoom will probably be still largely used. That has been a company that has actually done very well during the pandemic. And it's just there will be some cultural impact, but for the um, for the large part, you believe that society will go back to what it used, what normal used to be. I think people have short memories. You know, I, I think there are a lot of prognosticators who talked about dramatic changes. I don't think that's going to happen now. Again, if the vaccine turns out to not to be as effective, then a lot of you know what I'm saying, you could throw it out the window. Uh, We'll see. I'm, I'm optimistic about that. You know, there's a line from Hegel that I quote that what we learn from history is we learn nothing from history, uh, which, you know, reflects the short memories that I think people do have. So I, this has been a very interesting conversation about the pandemic. And But I want to shift a little bit to the two final questions that we always ask our guests, and they apply to the general um, age of our audience, teenagers. So number one, what books have had an impact on you that would rec you would recommend to our audience? Well, I can tell you one of my favorite books. Uh, you know, Faulkner is probably my favorite writer. Uh, it's not – there's a book he wrote which is – Funny as hell. It's his last novel. It's called The Reavers. Um, it did win a Pulitzer Prize, although it's not considered uh, one of his best books and certainly not one of his most serious books. It's, it's I don't know if it had a lot of influence on me, uh, but I really enjoyed it. There's a short story by Tomas Mann named, uh, called Tonio Kruger, uh, which was about uh, an artist really growing up uh, and 
that had a lot of impact on me. Uh, you know, I guess I read it when I was 12 or 13. Uh, and, you know, artists are, it was about a friendship between somebody who was, who was very isolated and very much a loner and an artist, sort of a nerd, as we would say today, and his friend who, uh, you know, was sort of like the, you know, blonde football hero uh, in, in high school and so forth and so on. Uh, and although I not only played football in high school and sat on the bench in college, but I even coached football, uh, in high school and college after I got out of grad school for a while. Uh, nonetheless, you know, I always wanted to be a writer and, you know, I was pretty much a loner as a, as a kid. So I really identified with, uh, Tony O'Kruger, uh, a character in that short story by Thomas Mann that, that had a lot of impact on me. And the collection, uh, the short story collection is titled Death in Venice. And Tomas Mann for, you know, a German writer who won the Nobel Prize, a great writer. I haven't actually heard of either of those, but from what you describe of them, they sound very fascinating. And that was something I did find that you were a former football coach. And I find that very interesting. We didn't even get to talk about that which is very interesting to me that you were a writer and you were also very interested in science when you were younger and you were a football coach. So those, it seems like an odd combination, but it's, it's very fascinating. And I find that very interesting about you. Thanks. I get bored easily. I tell people, so I move from ADD, which I I mean, who doesn't have ADD? Yeah. Okay. So what's the other question? Yeah. So the last question is what advice do you have for teenagers, specifically life advice that would help them succeed? Uh, nothing you haven't heard before. Uh, try to figure out what interests you, what you're really into and try to figure out a way to pursue that for the rest of your life. You know, for, for me, the only when I was a kid, the only things, two things I had any interest in doing was number one, be a writer. Number one, do medical research, biomedical research. I never wanted to be a doctor in terms of treating anybody, but I was very interested in biomedical research. Um, I can remember the exact point in time and when I decided to abandon the medical research as a as a career and become a writer. There are people who do both, but I'm not one of them. Uh, so for me, it was kind of easy. I knew what I wanted to do. It's a lot harder when you're not really sure what you want to do. Um, but as I said, you know, the advice is easy. Figuring it out and taking it is, that's the hard part. And, you know, be yourself, you know, be true to yourself. Um, when you do something you know, you have a choice about what to do, and I'm talking about moral issues, probably more than careers, uh, although it applies to choosing a career too, you don't always know what the right thing to do is when you're trying to figure out what you're going to do, but usually you know what the wrong thing to do is. You know, something inside you is going to say, you know, this is wrong. Sometimes you do it anyway. 
but just think when you when you face a decision, and again, it would apply to a, a career. Does it feel right, or doesn't it feel right? And if it doesn't feel right, then don't do it. I don't always follow my own advice, incidentally. Yeah, giving advice is much easier. It's very interesting. We haven't actually gotten that advice where you say, be yourself from a moral perspective. And I find that very interesting. Um, it's You're exactly right in the way that if you're going to probably not be able to sleep at night if you don't follow what you think was right in, in some of the occasions. So I find that very interesting. Well, thank you so much, Professor Barry, for coming on the podcast. It was wonderful having you on. Uh, it has been a pleasure. Thanks, you. I think it's interesting that we can find so many similarities between a disease or an outbreak pandemic that happened in 1918 with a pandemic that's happening right now and started in 2020. Like, I think that's crazy that we can find a lot of similarities between those two. I, I really do think that's interesting. And I also thought it was fascinating what he said about what we can learn from what happened during that pandemic. A lot of stuff, if you look at the history, is kind of being repeated so there was a mask mandate back then. There's it depends on the state you're in. If you're in America, there's a usually a mask mandate in America. And I just find it really interesting what science has learned and what kind of people can learn from looking back at the history. It is really fascinating. And I like that he said people forget like when this is done, people are just going to forget. And I feel like that's kind of happened. And that's why it feels also new, even though a pandemic has happened about a hundred years ago. So that is really funny. It is really interesting. So it kind of gives us hope. Obviously it'll probably maybe take a year for everything to wear off year or two. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not a scientist, obviously, <laughs> um, but it'll be in our memory a little bit. And we'll always, at least people who live through this will always look back and be like, wow, that was crazy. Um, but it is, it is a good thing that he's predicting that it's going to go back to, to normal, quote unquote, or whatever that is. So that's, I'm very happy about that. Me too. I'm ready to not have to wear a mask and I, that I can eat in, in restaurants and not just have to go through the drive-thru. I'm ready for things to get back to our normal. Same. It's, that's going to be fun when that all goes back to normal, except it's probably going to be gradual. So I'm probably not going to yeah. notice it as much unless you're in one of these really locked down states or countries or whatever, because I know we have some international listeners. So that'll be interesting. Um, I thought it was fascinating learning about the doctors of that era, how they basically excelled science. And you have John Hopkins, the university, the hospital university that was founded. And that was all very fascinating. I can't remember if we actually talked about that during the interview, but that's definitely mentioned in his book, which I read. That is really interesting. I also liked his advice because though we kind of get it a lot, he kind of said it differently. Like I like how he said, like, do what you think is right, but sometimes that can be hard to discern what is right, but you usually know what is wrong. And so you know, like, oh, I'm not going to do that. And so I like that he said that, like, be true to yourself kind of from a moral perspective. And I thought that was really great. I thought that was also really interesting. So yeah, that was a really fascinating interview. And I'm so happy we were able to have Professor Barry on. He was very fascinating. And the topic of his book was also very fascinating. So Maddie, what are our usual announcements? 
Um, so our usual announcements, um, go check out our website at aimingforthemoon.com. We have guest pages there on our guest tab. We have a blog where you can kind of see my Maddie's opinions. And we have a series called Podcast Logs, which is kind of a personal spin on what it's like running a podcast. Uh, we have a contact page if you want to tell us anything that you like that we're doing or you don't like what we're doing. We'd love to hear your feedback either way. Um, yeah. And then you want to tell them about our social media platforms? Yep. So we're on Twitter and Instagram and we're also on YouTube. So the YouTube account is aiming for the moon podcast. So Google that some songs will come up, but we'll hopefully be there too. (laughs) And Maddie is now in charge of that. And she's been updating all of the stuff that's up there. So that's awesome. And yeah, we also have Twitter and Instagram, as I just said, aiming the number four moon on both of those platforms. Follow us there. We post updates. We post pictures of the guests. It's kind of just where we have direct communication with our listeners. It's pretty cool. It is. Yeah. So I really think that was a fascinating interview. And as I just said, follow us on all the social platforms. We would love to hear from you. We would love to interact with you guys. It's awesome that you guys are listening to us. Thank you so much. So yeah, thanks. Yep. So yeah, write the podcast, share it, share it with your uncle you see once a year, share it with your friends, share it with your family, share it with anyone who might be interested in a particular guest or in our podcast in general. That would be awesome. We're trying to build up to around 50 um, reviews. That would be great. So obviously, if you guys could give us more, that'd be awesome. But let's set 50 as a goal. We might even do a prize. It'd make us happy. It might even do a prize. I know we did that last year and that um, went pretty well. So yeah. Don't forget, set your sights high and aim for the moon.